welcome to Our Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm B. And this is a podcast where normally we torture Dad with objects of art history that he is not that keen on. But today I'm giving him the reins because he's becoming older, if not wiser, uh, very soon. It's your birthday soon. Yes, and um, I'm very, very grateful for this gift. Um, I mean, one episode out every 45, because this is our 45th episode, to be allowed to be the presenter. And I've really been looking forward to this. So what do you, you can present your concept. I don't know if you're presenting art you do or don't like or a mix or what are you doing? What yeah, are you doing? No, uh, okay. Well, the theme of this art is what I call a variety pack. Now, when I was a kid, you know, usually we just have a single big box of cereals. It might be Rice Krispies, it might be cornflakes or something. But occasionally my parents would buy those little variety packs where you have six or eight small cereals. And some of them were the really nice ones like Sugar Frosted Flakes or Cocoa Pops or um, Fruit Loops. But always in among them, there was something horrible and boring and dry, like, you know, the ordinary bland rice krispies or or something really healthy like all bran and uh, you know i i loved the variety i loved the fact that there were all most of the cereals were nice but then you had to get through the ones that were not so nice so this is what this art is it's my variety pack and you can tell which or, uh, you, you can express an opinion on which you think are nice and which are not. So th this is what the theme is going to be and what the rationale for today's episode is. The first work I've chosen is called Composition 8 by Vasily Kandinsky. Um, now, would you like to describe what you see in this? Uh, so here we see on a pale, almost pastel background, a variety of different shapes, many concentric circles of different colours, wild lines, very geometric, sharp lines beaming out towards the right side of the canvas, but then also small grids made up of lines with the blocks inside coloured in with different colours. See these sort of triangular shapes which remind me of mathematical instruments or angles on these bloody maths tests where they give you half the angle and you had to say what the other part how big the other angle was um and yeah so a big mass of different geometric shapes to use a complaint that you normally lodge doesn't really look like anything in particular in the real world to me yeah, well, you, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're surprised by my choice of this. And as we'll dig deeper into it, you can, you'll be able to see the rationale. So Kandinsky was born in Russia in 1866, and obviously he's known as an artist these days. Do you know what his original career was? Was he a lawyer? Better than that. He was a legal academic. Oh, God. So yeah. you would be up in your ivory tower alone. Yeah. That's right. So, but he gave up the teaching of law to become an artist um, full time and he moved to Germany. Now, he had a, a great fascination for color. And as you know, I love color and art. And he'd been impressed by the, the vivid colors on buildings and particular churches um, down in the south of Russia. And he said this of the importance of color in painting. Color is the keyboard 
The eyes are the hammers, the soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand which plays, touching one key or another to cause vibrations in the soul. So he um, became interested in abstract art, um, partly in his experience that someone had hung upside down one of his own pictures, one of his earlier pictures in in his house and when he came back from a walk he saw it hanging upside down but instead of being angry he said well that's just interesting because of the shapes and and the colors and he um drew he he experienced synesthesia which mm -hmm. is why there is this mixture of talk of colors and composition and this picture is called composition eight in his writing so for him there was a uh, symbiosis between the color and the shape and all of them were reflective of in, in essence and and inner music and this um was partly connected with his interest in a school of thought called theosophy and theosophists believe that um creation is essentially a geometric process and um you can see this also in um, a painting which struck me immediately as being quite similar, perhaps not so much in its uh, shapes, but certainly in its colors. Um, Hilda F. Clint's group 10 altarpiece, mm. um, this brought to mind. So do you see anything in this painting that is suggestive of sound to you? In Kandinsky's piece, yeah. Yes. I think when you look at the lines that he has with the small blocks in some parts of them shaded in, it's very reminiscent of a musical score in that sense. Or when you look at the radiating circles, I mean, one could compare them to a speaker, but that obviously wasn't the case in the time that he was painting in the 20s. But it gives you that sense of, you know, when you see animations that go along with music on YouTube or something, when you have a drum beat and you have these sort of radiations going out. I mean, I think you can see what he's thinking of. You you know, when you close your eyes sometimes and you listen to music, you have these ideas or forms that come to mind. I mean, some things are more like imagined um, musical score signs. I mean, in the sort of the middle of the top, right-hand corner, you have the set of two lines with a semicircle going through them. I mean, it almost brings to mind some kind of primitive treble clef or something like that. I think the wildness of the composition as well reminds one of the sort of jazz age confluence of hear different shapes but in jazz different sounds and the wildness of how they fit together i mean you can see how he's expressing some new conception of music perhaps not only in the connection of it to visual art but also in music itself at the time yes and even before reading about the synesthesia and his the importance of music the very first time i saw this painting i thought that the upper right hand corner looked like strings on a piano when you open mm -hmm. up the inside of the piano and you see the strings so you know one can very definitely see this coming through now 
the reason I like this piece, even though it isn't of anything, is first of all, it doesn't pretend to be of anything. It's just one of those paintings where the experience of looking at the color and the shapes is interesting and gratifying. And also because um, I'd previously seen a uh, constructivist painting, much simpler than this, called House Under Construction, which was just a set of lines and blocks, almost like a, a child's building block set laid out on a on a on a canvas and this his um, kandinsky's art was similar to constructivism but it was different because constructivists saw art primarily as the servant of technology yeah. and one of the most famous um constructivist paintings was one in the revolution where the red wedge attaches attacks the white circle um he had an interesting uh history insofar as the russian revolution was concerned because he actually went back to russia mm. from germany um just before world war one and uh was there during the revolution and became um he was the founder of the institute of artist artist artistic culture so the bolsheviks bolsheviks were interested in him but then he got condemned because his art was too bourgeois oh um yeah um I mean, this is a problem that that we've discussed before, haven't we? I've always said that you know your the sort of art you appreciate is all about ich, ich, ich. it's it's not about serving the the proletariat, is it? No, but I wouldn't describe you as a member of the proletariat. You, if there was a, a repetition of the Russian Revolution today, you would place yourself in the intelligentsia at the vanguard of the party. <laughs> yeah, well, someone has to lead, don't they? So, <laughs> yes. So, um, and his, you know, the, the the art that he produced, it was far less disciplined than that of the constructivists. And another one of his paintings, um, called Red, Yellow, Blue, has far more wavy rather than straight lines, um, but is you know is, is equally pleasing. So, after leaving Russia, he went and joined the Bauhaus movement mm. in Germany. And then, of course, when the Nazis came to power, he found it prudent to leave. And he went and lived the rest of his life in, in France, where he died in 1944. So, yes, I, I, this, this work really appeals to me simply because it's interesting to the eye. There's always something to see and because of the fantastic use of colour. I think just another thing that came to mind when you were saying the difference between constructivism and Kandinsky with constructivism considering art the servant of technology, I think, as you say, opposed that Kandinsky gives a massive amount of agency or a massive degree of agency to colour and shape. You see that in that quote that you read out from him at the beginning where he's saying that colour is the keyboard, the eyes are the hammers. And the artist's hand playing along that gives, I guess, a greater deal of importance to these elements rather than them being instruments and not musical instruments, I mean, blunt tools of the artist to achieve some external aim. I mean, you can see that he's really grappling with how to visualize synesthesia. I mean, how do you 
visualize synesthesia, the experience of multiple senses at a time in a single sensory artwork, I think he has achieved it. Yeah, I do too. And and the the fact is that you would have to use a variety of shapes. It couldn't just be linear or or circular. It has to, has to be a combination. So, yes, this is uh, definitely something I'd like to add to my collection. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I don't think I can <laughs> afford it for this birthday, but maybe the next one. <laughs> All right. We'll move on to the next piece of art, if we were to call it that. And this is the all brand box, definitely. The one you have to eat. So okay. this is the one we have to discuss. Now, without telling you the title of this, can you describe this picture to me? Tell me what you see. Well, I already know what this painting is from looking at it. You do remember I've studied art history, and this is quite a famous one they pull out in your intro lectures. But I will describe what I see as if I haven't seen it before. It's a painting in taupe, beige, brown, some almost greenish tones. You see a lot of um, geometric shapes which look like they've been fractured apart from some greater whole, sort of mirroring away from each other and turning, refracting. And in the centre you see, in the centre, sort of in the middle, some diagonal lines which cut a bit through the middle of the painting, drawing the eye away. I mean, most of the diagonal lines lean to the right, so you have the sense of dynamism in the painting. But then near that centre area, you do have something that's a bit more figurative, which looks like a hand holding onto the stem of two diagonal lines. But it's very hard not to see that once you know what the painting is depicting. Because that's what I see yeah. now. Look at it. <clears throat> well, the painting is called The Guitar Player. And I do not think that anyone could see a guitar player in that painting unless you were trying to look for a guitar player and you saw that little white semicircle as a stylized hand and the ladder as the neck of a guitar but i just do not see this as being a guitar player and i think it's a it's a dishonest work of art oh um, because it's depicting something which is of nothing as being of something for anyone who hasn't guessed already knowing dad do you want to reveal dad who painted this so i don't think you've actually said yet Picasso. Oh God! One of my bets, noir. <laughs> Look, we'll get into the theory of this in a minute. But you want to explain your background here, the background of your nemesis, or? Well, I've just instinctively never liked Picasso because of the pretense that abstract works. I can accept abstract works like Kandinsky's as abstract works, but when you start assigning um, yes, but here, objects to them when they're patently not being depicted, I just don't think that's authentic. 
here Picasso was sitting. So this was born. This was painted in 1910. Picasso was sitting on the edge of abstraction. So as you say, it's not pure abstraction yet. But he was playing with cubism, developed first by Cezanne, and this concept of seeing an object from all angles. So they're breaking down the fundamentals of Western perspective and painting, which is a reference back to the academic background that Picasso actually did have. He could paint figuratively very well. But Cezanne had developed this idea of seeing the object from all angles. So I look at the guitar player not just front on, but from all angles at one time. And how do we depict that in a painting? This is also reflecting the idea that the modern world in this period, I mean, you think of the looming First World War, was a place of rupture. Society was rupturing and reforming. And that's why you see this movement towards abstraction and this play with the tension between seeing and depiction because you become ever more unsure that what you're seeing, what you're perceiving is actually what you're seeing and or that you can depict that perception correctly to any other person. Yes, if he had described this as a study in brown or brown cubes, then although I wouldn't like I wouldn't like it as a piece of art. It wouldn't doesn't please the eye because I find it very bland, very dark, and there aren't as many interesting shapes as there are in the Kandinsky. At least uh, he wouldn't have been trying to say that this is a guitar player from all angles because it isn't. I mean, even if you were to move to his later pictures where you get these people with body parts misarranged in different places, well, we haven't even got here the guitar player's eyes and ears and face and the and the and the lower part of the guitar as as an instrument. It's just a jumble of of brown cubes and and uh, polygons, and I just don't see it as being a guitar player, and I don't know how it can be accepted as such. But how would you depict? I mean, this is the thing, this tension between seeing and depiction. Have you ever tried to depict a guitar player from every angle at once? I mean, he's breaking down the form of the guitar player into geometric shapes and presenting them all on the same plane. But if you were to cut all these little shapes out, how would you rearrange them as I mean, a guitar player? Far too literal. I just, I can't even, I don't, I'm going to confiscate all your cereal. I can't. <laughs> Well, I think this is where we're getting to part of the problem with Picasso, because when I did some research on him, I, I saw that, as you said, he had studied art, etc. And his father, who obviously must have um, really liked him, fostered his talent. But then the ungrateful boy, quote unquote, frequently argued with his father. And I think therein maybe lies the psychological problems that subsequently developed in Picasso. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, you know, my heart leapt a little bit when I saw that during a period in Paris in his early years, he was struggling. He had to burn his paintings in order to keep warm during the winter. I just wish there'd been a more harsh winter throughout the early first decade of the 20th century. But I mean, 
I think also just going back to the fact that he was academically gifted, do you know that there's another painting by him of a guitarist? Yes, I do, called Old Man Playing a Guitar. Yeah, 1903. Do you know the story yeah. behind that? No. So that he painted that quite soon after the death of a close friend of his, Casagamus, I, I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but it was in this period where he was feeling particularly sympathetic to the downtrodden, the outcasts of society, because he himself had been penniless for most of 1902, probably, as you say, burning paintings to keep warm. <laughs> Um, and this the distorted form of the old guitarist, which is very typical, probably the most famous painting of his blue period, you know, these paintings which are all in blue tone, mm. very distorted, elongated limbs, cramped posture. This is actually an academic reference to the painter El Greco, who Picasso drew on quite heavily. And you can see here in the attitude of the man that he's he's also blind in this painting, that yeah. he becomes oblivious to his blindness and poverty as he plays. Now, that's obviously a very powerful symbolism. I mean, do you like that yes. guitarist? I, I don't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a mournful painting, uh, but I mean, this it's a lot of sympathy in one, so I can see uh, real talent in that, but this is clearly a regression. No, but what I was going to say... <laughs> So that, though, is actually nothing new. It's a very mournful, emotional, empathy-provoking painting, but it's nothing new. Here, Picasso is not regressing. He is moving forward. And into this play with abstraction, considering it as a new form of depiction. They are different things. They are not the same thing. You have two guitarists depicted in different ways. I think the problem is that you try and force the later guitarist into the same category as the first. Well, that's not my fault. We <laughs> call both the guitarists. Look, there's one way we can solve this. Okay. But when we did the episode on Agnes Martin and we talked about the rose, holding it out to the child, putting it behind the back, saying, is the rose still beautiful? And the child said, yes. And I think, I don't know if it was her who said it, but we agreed that, you know, one of the tests of art is for it to be able to be explicable to a child, or at least its beauty. Now, do you think any child would see a guitar player in this? I think a child would probably appreciate this painting more than you do, because I think also <laughs> even though even though obviously we're exploring art history and theory in this podcast, there is a downside to becoming too bogged down in theory. A child maybe could appreciate this painting more for what it is. Instead of you in your ivory tower alone with Kandinsky, <laughs> bourgeois vanguard of the party. Yes. I don't know. I I get your point because it's your birthday. I'll say that but I will not go further. Right. I suppose I have to take that as the closest that we're going to meet on this. But anyway, okay, now we go to the next painting, which is one of my all-time favourites. Um, it's by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, self-portrait in a straw hat from 1782. Quite so, different. Previous yes, very different. So, um, 
she had a, a fascinating life, born in 1755. Um, her father was himself a painter, and he began teaching her from a very young age, although he died when she was only 12. Um, she studied art, which was very unusual for that era, and began painting portraits at the age of 14. Mm. <clears throat> um, now, there were very strict rules about who could be a professional painter. You had to either um, belong to a painter's guild or be have been accepted into one of the art academies, and she hadn't been accepted into either. In fact, there was a rule that in the art academies, there could only be four women members at any time. So it was extremely difficult to be recognized in that way. Anyway, she joined a guild, um, although subsequently after she became um, a favorite of the court of Louis the 16th, she he appointed her to one of the academies. Mm -hmm. um, she married an art dealer, um, but he was a, a wastrel and gambled and spent money on drinking, etc. So it really fell to her to support the family and their daughter. And she painted 660 portraits, uh, as well as other artworks in her career, and was most famous for ones that depicted maternal tenderness. Mm. And her real... Um, fame came when she painted portraits of Marie Antoinette and of the royal family as a whole, and she painted more than 30 portraits of them. So before we talk more about her life, what, what do you think of this? Well, I always love um, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, these very soft paintings, as you say, beautiful depictions often of um maternal love but here the self-portrait I mean she's looking straight out at the viewer the very commanding presence holding the tools of her trade I mean you see here that with her confidence and the fact that she holds the brushes so many of them and so um I guess softly femininely you know for the time this is the frame in which would have been put but proudly in her hand you see that she is a professional she's not a dilettante um, doing this as a hobby. She's in full command. I mean, I think she's really, as you say, for the difficulty that she was put through first with her father dying and then with the disgraceful conduct of her husband in a time when um, obviously it's very difficult for women to earn their own income. She was a very successful professional woman. And I think you see that here. Um, I always love her paintings. I mean, she, as you say, she was so prolific. I think also the, this string of the theme of maternity that goes through her artworks, very interesting. As you say, she painted many other royal families. She painted Maria Carolina, who was the extremely fertile sister of Marie Antoinette, who was the queen of Naples. And whereas Marie Antoinette for many years struggled to conceive and, of course, that greatly endangered her position at the court when, as long as she had not conceived an heir, um, especially as there were rumours that the marriage hadn't been consummated at all, which put her in great peril in terms of being sent back in disgrace to Austria. And that was an attitude that was reinforced um, in letters from 
the Empress of Austria, Maria Therese, who would write these letters saying, oh, your sister Maria Carolina has had another child. This sister has had another child. This would all make me very happy, except that you keep failing me. You know, these really, um, I mean, she was a great force to be reckoned with, Maria Therese, but of course not always treating her children with the softness that a sort of normal parent might treat their children, considering that they were pawns of politics. So I think that also an interesting thing to think about when you're looking at uh, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's paintings as these images of maternity, they are also highly political paintings in that way. I mean, we look at them through the lens of, oh, lovely mother and baby, um, you know, the softness of how we view maternity today, but they were highly political. You know, these were heirs to empires, and sometimes we forget that. And so I think when you add that layer of political force beneath her paintings, it makes them even more powerful. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought of that dimension. Um, but yes, of course, it was very political. And I guess um, the, the Austrian empress was probably sending letters saying, why can't you be more like Caroline? Yeah. <laughs> to, <laughs> to yeah. Well, I... I sometimes slip into that because when your dog Adeline snores and the cat Buttons is just lying there nice and quietly, I say to Adeline, why can't you be more like Buttons? So um, can that upsets mummy because she says it's cruel. But anyway, um, <laughs> the other thing that struck me about this painting is the absolutely wonderful technique at painting skin tones and mm. and strands of hair. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to imagine you could get a brush thin enough to paint um the hair the way she does and there's an interesting contrast i i didn't know that rubens had painted a painting called girl in a straw hat which elizabeth vijay lebrun had seen on a trip to the low countries but this girl in the rubens isn't wearing a straw hat it's a felt hat and oh god it's another also, lie like picasso he's like yeah, that's right and some, and and just looking at those two paintings, apart from the obvious difference, and some people have said maybe she was actually gently teasing Rubens by entitling her painting with the same or similar title and actually wearing a straw hat, mm. is how his depiction of skin is far more plasticky, whereas hers is far more naturalistic. Yes, Rubens famous for the sort of very fleshy models. I mean, that was the fashion of the time for beauty. That yes. The time, these very fleshy women. Yes. Um, the other thing that, you know, uh, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun was a, a survivor. I mean, she was living in an incredibly dangerous time. She was very closely connected to the court and therefore at the time of the revolution, she fled. Um, coincidentally, on the same day as the royal family was taken from Versailles for the last time, we and actually, she just sorry to butt in, yeah. but she was, you know, I mean, of course, as I was saying, that these were political symbols, these paintings and pieces of propaganda. I mean, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's um, depictions of Marie Antoinette were very closely tied with the rise and fall of the royal family. Marie Antoinette, I don't know if you had heard this particular insult, nickname, whatever before, but she becomes so unpopular that in many of these pamphlets, she was given the nickname Madame Deficit, 
with the obvious <laughs> she was running up so many debts that she was imperiling the kingdom. And Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun had painted one of these portraits of the Queen, and it was intended to be hung at the Royal Academy in August of 1787 as part of the annual showing. But out of fear of public outrage, as this hatred of Madame Deficit was growing, they decided we better not put this painting on display, otherwise it could provoke a riot. So instead, you know, which this I find not the best, I guess, uh, public relations strategy, they left an empty frame there and then a jokester visiting the exhibition affixed a note saying, behold the deficit. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's, um, wow. So... Yeah, I, I had no idea that it was um, that it was uh, so political that you know she was directly tied to her to the spendthrift nature of the um, of the uh, of the crown. But yes, so I can that that gives an added reason as to why she uh, left in such haste. Mm. Um, so she had a peripatetic life in Europe for twelve years. Was admitted to art academies in various. Country, she painted Lady Hamilton, mistress of oh. uh, Lord Nelson. Yes, and then was rehabilitated was for her attitudes. Emma Hamilton, when she was, because you know her husband was the ambassador to Naples, the English ambassador. Yes. And she became very famous for having these salon afternoons where she would dress up in different outfits and do poses for people who would come. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So she was an exhibitionist and. Uh, yeah. So it would have been an influencer, I suppose, taking yeah. lots of selfies. Yeah. <laughs> so she was re rehabilitated by Napoleon um, and came back to France and then was on a trip to England in 1803 during a truce between England and France. But then the war broke out again and all French people were ordered to leave. But the Prince of Wales uh, intervened to grant her permission to stay in England. So um, she escaped that particular political danger. Um, though things were still exciting in the sense that in the at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, her house was ransacked twice, first by Prussian troops prior to the initial defeat of Napoleon, and then by British troops uh, at the time of Waterloo. But she survived all that, um, maintained her work as a painter. And, you, you know, the, the, the mere fact of survival as a prominent person was an achievement in itself. There was a famous cleric who was actually a theorist of the revolution named the Abbe C.A. And when, after all the turmoils of the revolution, Bonaparte, the restoration of the monarchy, someone said to him, what did you do during the revolution? He said, j'ai vécu, I survived. <laughs> and the same can be said of her. So, you know, this is a lovely painting, and it's also by someone who was unique or almost unique as a woman in entering this profession and someone with enormous talent. Yes, and by all accounts, she loved her father. So maybe yes. that's actual reason. You know, this is why you cast Picasso aside. That's right. <laughs> okay. 
So my final work of art is Edward Hopper's 7am, painted in 1940. Yes. <laughs> do you know what it's like at 7am? Yeah, I do, because when I was a teenager, you'd come into my room and say to me, Lizzie, I just thought I would let you know that it's 7am waking me up, as if if I wanted to know that, I would have already been awake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> would you like to describe this painting? Uh, so here we have a white sort of typical American shop front. In the shop window you can see a clock, um, a bookcase, some other small bottles. It's obviously in a quiet little town because in the you see no people in this image. One of the blinds is drawn, gives a sense of a sleepy main street early in the morning before anyone's woken up. And in the background you have these windswept trees and just a corner of blue square blue sky it's a very quiet morning yes so he um hopper was born in 1882 and he was an artist throughout his life he studied art at the new york school of art um he made three visits to france 1906 and 1910 and thankfully didn't fall under the influence of picasso in his art um and then he worked for some time as a commercial artist in in new york in order to fund his painting but then became a, an independent artist and his pictures are immediately recognizable because they often incorporate um at least one and sometimes in combination of three themes um the first of these is a, a sort of unease about the boundary between the man-made and the natural world mm. um they often, his landscapes are often those of very isolated buildings against um, either open an open plain or a railway line, most commonly a forest. And the forest is very dark and the building light. And it, you don't know whether he's saying that um, progress is inimical to nature or America's being swallowed up by progress. Uh, another painting that's that does this, I, I mean, 7 a.m. clearly does this because you've got the very dark bush or forest on the left and the bright shop on the right is is a is a painting called Gas, which depicts a light bathed gas station surrounded by a very dark forest. Mm. Um, and another theme is a, a view of other of interiors from the outside so you know it's uh he's 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 always looking in it's it's uh sometimes a bit intrusive almost looking in at looking in at people and probably the most famous of his works that did this was nighthawks um painted in 1942 which um has been reproduced and uh parodied often in in many occasions and there's a very um strong streak of what you might call loneliness in this depiction of people i mean if you if you sometimes there are no people at all in the paintings mm. like 7 a.m that's very frequent other times the people are very subsidiary in, in the gas picture you hardly notice that there's a pump attendant mm. um, relative to the other things and um in many of his paintings you see a person who is um 
alone and being observed and a good one is office in a small city yeah where you see someone looking out you're outside the panes of glass he's looking out of the office and there's no one with him now what do you what does 7 a.m make you feel and then i'll tell you how it makes me feel i think 7 a.m makes me feel a sense of unease but almost not so much because of the forest although that's very wild windswept at the mercy of nature and dark it has its own animation i think the inanimation of the this sort of deserted shop front or the sense that someone was just there they've just left i find more uneasy i guess that's reflecting this unease of modern life where we become more and more at the mercy of these surroundings that yes we've created but come to control our lives you could see that almost as well in office in a small city this control of this monolithic office block even in a small city this change to the american but also general western landscape in that period um and just on the note of feelings it's maybe also interesting to think about Nighthawks in comparison to something like Van Gogh's Caris, uh, Cafe Terrace at night, this painting of that Paris Terrace Cafe, picturing oh, yes. and beautiful. But of course, the sad story behind that being that he was too poor to go in and eat with right. the people there and be among them. I mean, Nighthawks, on the one hand, you have a group of people, the the waiter and the woman and the man seem to be talking to each other or acknowledging each other, but then you have the single man sitting alone, alienated from them. This idea that even among people in a large city, we can be very alone. Yes. Well, I mean, I had 7am on the wall of my student room when I was at university. I, I was so struck by it when I saw it in a poster shop. And one interesting, or well, first interesting thing is, I never actually even noticed the forest. Um, to me, it, it just didn't exist. And I only picked up on this theme when I got a book about Hopper, this tension mm -hmm. between the wild and the and the constructed. And to me, 7am is a profoundly optimistic painting mm -hmm. because it shows the day at its start where there are enormous possibilities as to what you might do with the day. Mm. you alone looking at the window you're autonomous and you can make of it what you will and i i think that i see that in a lot of hopper's paintings to me the people aren't so much alone as free mm. and i guess that's why i've always been enormously attracted to his art so it probably says you know to me I suppose reflects in in me the importance of autonomy and self direction and possibility. Mm. It's like a Rorschach test. These paintings. Yes. I mean, I think that is a good thing about them, though, that they speak to experiences that we all have, but that we all perceive in different ways. I, something that I always also think about when I think of Hopper is the poet Frank O'Hara, who I guess also wrote about this um, change in life that comes with modernity. He 
I just feel that they express the same sense of, yes, possibility, but um, being at the mercy of the society we've created. Like he wrote this poem, Meditations in an Emergency, and in one section he says, each time my heart is broken, it makes me feel more adventurous and how the same names keep recurring on that interminable list. But one of these days there'll be nothing left with which to venture forth. And setting up this idea of, I guess, the modern emergency of wanting to push forward, but the exhaustion that comes with that. Yes. Yeah. That that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now to <laughs> finish off, I want you to rank these in order of the extent to which you like them these four paintings you often put me to this ghastly test well i think i would put elizabeth Vigée lebron first i mean be beautiful but i think it's also her biography that draws me to it so i will acknowledge that my view here is not is not an art historical ranking this is personal liking so okay. elizabeth Vigée lebron first then 7am is not my favourite of Edward Hopper's paintings, so for that reason I would put the Kandinsky next because, as you say, it's so energising with the movement of your eyes across the canvas. And then I would push the Hopper and then I would put the Picasso. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, That's very... just because I don't want to eat the all brand first doesn't mean I hate all brand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh well, that's good. That's interesting. Well, thank you for your honesty and yeah. and uh, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> advice for this week? Yes. Um, well, my advice is directed, even though you know what hesitates to advise people who aren't in the same profession you're in. My advice is both to psychologists and to parents. Hmm. Now. One of the things was when I was growing up, and I seem to bear some quite severe traumas from growing up, but one of them was when we had the big cereal boxes, they yeah. would never get Cocoa Pops. So the, the variety pack was the only time I would have the opportunity to have Cocoa Pops. And much as I would ask for Cocoa Pops, they'd say, no, 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 that's unhealthy. That's a sweet rather than a cereal. So, of course, what do you think that the effect of that was? Once I left home, what did I want most of all? Cocoa Pop. You're a Cocoa Pop fiend. So this is something I'm going to write to the editors of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and say that they should recognize Cocoa Pop syndrome as a valid syndrome, covering any situation where a person is denied something, leading to them craving it. What do you think? Yeah, very interesting. Don't you think it's a bit wrong that you were most animated in this whole episode when talking about the Cocoa Pops deprivation? <laughs> you can just imagine you in your room at university grinding up the Cocoa Pops and snorting them through a rolled up <laughs> Um So, psychologists, get your house in order. Parents, don't deny your kids Cocoa Pops. Yeah, well, I'll remind that. I'll remind you of that the next time I want something and you say no. Um, well, as always, interesting and concerning to get a window into your psychology. Um, and I'm glad that we could come to something of a peace 
with our rankings of the yes. works. But good. Well, happy birthday. I hope you enjoyed that because it's not happening for at least another year. Um, <laughs> no, thanks, Lizzie. I enjoyed it. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us for this special episode of Art Dad Doesn't Like. As always, you can find the images we've been talking about in the link in the episode description. And you can also find us all the time on Instagram at ArtDadPod. And we hope you'll be able to join us again next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.